Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you take them and and open in them to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be reading this morning verses 2 through 7. As you're turning in your Bibles to that passage, just remind us all of uh, the title that Tim had given originally to this series going through the book of Philippians. Letting go of the life you want to receive the life Christ gives. I think there's two types of passages that are particularly difficult. Some passages are difficult simply because they're difficult to understand what they mean, right? And we struggle to to know exactly what is trying to be said. Other passages we read are, are not difficult at all to know what they mean, but they can be very difficult for us to obey. And the verses we read today are that second type of difficult passage We know exactly what they mean, or at least we we can. They're not difficult to understand. They are, however, quite a challenge to put into practice. So with that introduction, I want to read our passage for us. Let me ask you, if you're able, would you please join me in standing as we read God's holy word today? This is Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the gift of your word, given to make us wise unto salvation, to give us everything necessary for life and godliness that we might be fully equipped to serve, to obey, and to do the work that you have put before us. And so, Lord, we ask, would you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in this portion of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. My first pastoral experience that I had after seminary was serving in a very small country church that was about an hour and a half south of here in a small town called Cross Hill, South Carolina. I would be genuinely surprised if there were people in this room who know where Cross Hill, South Carolina is. There might be a couple. It's about halfway between Greenwood and Clinton. Uh, But it's very small. uh, Blink and and you'll go right by it and not notice it. But it was a very small church that was there, a, a, a very sweet, a very kind church. They were very patient with me in my first uh, pastoral job after seminary, and they were very kind to let me be there. I believe the biggest disagreement we ever had in that church was that about half the church were Carolina fans, and the other half were Clemson fans. I- I'm glad we don't have such a problem in this place. But it really didn't take very long to realize that much of the unity that we enjoyed in that small congregation was actually 
somewhat of an artificial unity. You see, the pastor who had been there before I got there had sort of taken it on himself to drive out anyone who disagreed with him. And therefore, the people who were left when I got there was a small group, but it was a very uh, one single-minded group that agreed with one another simply because everyone who didn't agree had already left. And it didn't take long to see that that's not really unity at all, is it? I realized that there are sort of two different types of unity. And if I can borrow some language, perhaps from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we might say that there is such a thing as a cheap unity and such a thing as a costly unity in the church. You see, there's a cheap unity. That's the unity that we might attain simply by only choosing to spend time with people who already agree with us, gathering small but like-minded groups of people. But by costly unity, what do I mean? I mean a costly unity is the true, robust communion of the saints, the fellowship of believers that we enjoy together in Christ. And only in Christ, you see, a full, robust Christian fellowship is one that can truly exist even in the midst of an otherwise radical diversity. It can exist in the midst of a body where there is a radical diversity of opinions, a diversity of views, even in politics, even in theology. There can be a diversity of race and culture and background, even socioeconomic class, because the gospel, by its very nature, has the power to bring together all different sorts of people and unite them together in Christ. And I call that a costly unity because that kind of Christian fellowship is not always easy. In fact, it's almost never easy for us to bring together people from such diverse backgrounds, but then to find that unity and that fellowship that is ours in Christ. But that is the unity that I believe that we as believers are called to. And that is the unity that I believe Paul is, is exhorting us to in these verses. So here's what I want us to see. The verses uh, 2 and 3 describe this unity for us, and they describe why it's so important. And then verses 4 through 7 give us some help. There, those verses will give us three helps as we pursue Christian unity, even costly unity. But first, the unity in the church, look at these first two verses. Verses 2 and 3, Paul here does something that is very unusual for him he calls out two members of the church by name. Now, it's fairly usual at the very end of letters, Paul might give some greetings, some hellos, right? That's very casual, that's very kind. This is different. This is still in the body of the letter, and he's calling them out by name, almost rebuking them, telling them and exhorting them that they are to agree in the Lord. We might read that and we might be tempted to think, well, he's giving the names of these two people. This is just sort of a one-off situation, right? This is only local interest and doesn't apply to the broader church. But all the commentators say exactly the opposite. They say the fact that Paul would bring this up, that he would call people out by name, that he would do so in the middle of his letter while he's still in the midst of these very 
big, broad theological discussions that he's having, that shows the, the significance of this topic, that this is something of interest to the whole church, in Philippi and beyond, even to us today. And, and the issue that he calls them out on, what is it that they disagree about? You won't find out by going back to the text, right? Because he doesn't tell us what the issue is. Here he calls out these two women, calling them by name, exhorting them to agree, right? To set aside this disagreement. But we actually don't know what it is that they disagreed on. We don't know what their, their argument or their spat was about. Otherwise, Paul could have simply solved it, right? It might have been easy for Paul to say, listen, Euodia, Syntyche is right on this one, right? I, I hate to say it, but you're wrong. Right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. That might have been very simple for him, simply to solve this disagreement, but he doesn't do that. He exhorts both of them. And he exhorts them both equally. See, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Therefore, what we have to learn has nothing to do with the topic that they disagreed about, but it has everything to do with the nature of disagreements in the church, right? The pursuit of Christian unity, a fellowship that is not broken by human opinions, what Paul sees, and what I want us to see, is he doesn't just look at this and see, oh, it's two ladies in the church bickering again, they can't get along. What Paul sees, rather, is he looks at this and he sees, this is a, the very covenant people of God threatening to fracture. Right? These are the sheep for whom Christ has shed his precious blood to purchase them, to bring them together into one body, and now, human disagreements are causing disunity and threatening to bring them back apart. Right? And so this is a big deal. This is a big deal for Paul. It's not just a disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche. It's a disagreement between people in the church, the saints, right? fellow believers who have been brought together by the blood of Christ, right? refusing to put that into practice, but instead being uh, being disunified. Now, I want us to see three things in these first two verses, in verses 2 and 3, that show us how important unity is in the church. There's three things here. Unity is in Christ. Unity is in community. And our unity is as believers. First, unity in Christ. Look at verse 2. When Paul says, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to what? To agree in the Lord. To agree in the Lord. Now, if you have an NIV with you today, it says he exhorts them to be of the same mind. Now, I usually love my ESV, but I think the NIV is actually more helpful to us here because that's more accurate a translation to say to be of the same mind. And what would that remind you of? being of the same mind. I think if we were the original readers and perhaps reading this in, in the Greek New Testament, right, we might be reminded of what Paul had said back in the beginning of chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, uh, verse 2. When Paul says to the Philippians, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And he goes on, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then again, this is verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he goes on and on, those famous verses describing the humility and the exaltation of Christ. You see, he's, he's echoing these earlier exhortations in the book where he charges the entire church to be of the same mind. And what mind is that? It is the very mind of Christ. That every believer was to uh, to, to follow Christ and having this mind of, of humility, of counting another's needs as more significant than our own, right? of putting others' interests in front of our own, of, of humbling ourselves just like Christ, who was in the very form of God, but did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, that he might serve his people. You see, what Paul is doing here, when he tells these two ladies to be of the same mind, he is simply taking this great theological truth that he already taught in chapter 2 and making one very specific application. See, what does that mean, that great passage in chapter 2 that was so theological and lofty? He says, well, here's one thing it means. Think about your disagreements. And the need for all of us, then, to put others' interests ahead of our own, to consider them more important than ourselves. I I think of this passage, and sometimes I imagine uh, what Paul would have been saying in telling these two people to get along, and can't you just imagine one of them responding? But Paul, you don't know what they have done, right? You don't know what she has said. And then I imagine perhaps Paul responding in this way to say, but have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Our unity is often so hard because we say what they might have said. We are always saying, well, yes, unity sounds great in theory, right? Theoretically, yes, we would love to be unified with all the other believers. But don't you know what they think about this issue? Don't you see what they have done to me? Right? We, we get, get caught up on all these little particulars in practice and we think it, that is what makes it so difficult. But in response to this disagreement, Paul doesn't go into the details. He goes into theology. He brings us back to the mind of Christ. And he says, here is how the church behaves in response to these challenges. We adopt in ourselves, we we take the gospel, the mind of Christ, and apply that to our hearts first, right? Not to the other people who we have trouble getting along with, but to our own hearts first. You see, unity in the church will never be a matter of everyone finally starting to hold all the correct opinions, namely all of my opinions, so we can finally get along. Unity in the church is a matter of each member of the church beginning to hold the mind of Christ. Because we're not unified by our opinions, we're unified by Christ. If I am united to Christ by faith, 
If you are united to Christ by faith, then how are we not also all in one body, unified together? Our unity is in Christ. Secondly, notice, though, our unity happens in community. And look at uh, verse 3, the beginning of verse 3. Uh, Paul helps a thir- asks a third party to help. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Help these women. Here he's now appealing to somebody else, a third party, to get involved. Right? And we think, boy, that might be awfully difficult to get involved in someone else's argument. But Paul is asking. He's saying this is not going to be simply a personal matter. Right? This is a matter that affects the entire church when there is a split. And he refers to this person only as loyal companion. Right? We, we don't know who that is. Some of the commentators think, well, maybe it's uh, Epaphroditus. He's the one who carried the letter to the Philippian church. Some think perhaps it was Luke. Some say, well, the Greek word for companion is syzygous. Maybe that was actually someone's name. We don't know. We don't know who it is. But we do know this. Unity requires the entire church. It's never simply a matter of just the people who are failing to get along, who are failing to be unified. Paul didn't leave this simply as a personal issue. He said, this is an issue for the church. And he gets the church involved, asking someone else perhaps to get involved and mediate, or perhaps to get involved and pray, perhaps to encourage them. And I think that's really important because unity in the church is difficult, isn't it? I think that much is clear, that unity in the church is difficult for us, and it will always be difficult on this side of glory. And it won't happen individually. It requires the community. It requires the entire church. For me, even when I think about the churches that I have been involved in in my life, I would say that the majority of those churches look from the outside more or less like this one, right? In terms of uh, there is an external uh, unity perhaps that is here. They're pretty culturally homogenous, many of the churches that I've been involved in, right? We all come from a fairly small slice of the pie. We're pretty similar to one another. And yet it's still difficult for us to find unity in the church. We still struggle to get along, And then I think about Jesus' promise that he is calling his people together from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And I think, goodness, unity in that kind of multicultural setting, that is a supernatural unity that only comes through the work of the Spirit of Christ in his people, unifying us in Christ despite our differences. But it is a unity in Christ, it's a unity in community. And third, note that it is a unity as believers. Here at the end of verse 3, uh, Paul reminds these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, of their identity in Christ. He reminds them of who they are. Note the end of the verse here. He says, these two women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life whose names are in the book of life. Now, I think there's no doubt that Paul was a very good leader. 
that Paul knew how to mix encouragement together with exhortation, right? He knew how to uh, throw in positive reinforcement with his correction, but there's more than that going on here. Historians tell us that that major Greek and Roman cities, such as Philippi, a Roman colony, uh, would have kept registers with all the names of their citizens. Philippi, a Roman colony, would no doubt have had a register like this, and so uh, the people in the church would have been very familiar with that idea, with that concept. And as Roman citizens, those members of that church were no doubt very proud of that. That was something to, to take some pride in, that though they were a colony distant from Rome, nevertheless, they were Roman citizens. And there was something to the fact that their names were in that register. But it also meant that Rome promoted certain values, right? Certain ways of living, certain ways of deciding what is worth pursuing in life. Just like living here, right, in the United States in 2021, that this is a country that has a certain set of values, or maybe several certain sets of values, depending on where you live. Right? And it becomes the air that we breathe, that it inculcates us into saying, this is how we live, this is what we pursue, this is what we do with our time and our money. Paul is saying to these women, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember what book your name is written in. Right? To them, what matters most is not that their name is in the register of Roman citizens living in Philippi. What matters most to them is their name is in the book of life. And that is what ought to teach them how to live, what is important and what priorities and values that they will pursue. He says to them, don't let your life be dictated by the fact that you are a Roman. Don't let your life be dictated by the fact that you are an American or a Southerner, right? or a Democrat, or a Republican, or an Independent. Because your name is in the book of life. That is who you are. That is what teaches us how we will live, how we will treat one another in the church. He says, you have been redeemed. You have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Your citizenship is in heaven Remember we read that verse just last week, chapter 3, verse 20, that your citizenship, your true belonging, who you are, what defines you, is you are a citizen of heaven. I think we all know, don't we, how easy it is for us to just sort of go with the flow, right? Just to imbibe the cultural values of the world around us, to be so easily influenced. One of the major themes of Philippians is Paul is saying, walk as citizens worthy of the gospel. Learn to live as citizens worthy of the gospel whose names are in the book of life. You know, I was trying to think this week, just brainstorming, given this topic, trying to think, what is it that divides us? What are some of those major fault lines that run throughout the church, but, but also our church? And I was thinking this week, I mean, there's so many things we could point to uh, going on in our country today, it's not hard to think of things like politics. Politics have always been divisive, right? That's why up until, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, we kind of had that 
gentleman's agreement that we don't talk about them, right, in civilized com company. And maybe about five years ago, six years ago, it feels like lots of fuel has been poured on that fire and it's just exploding. It's not hard to think of other divisive topics related to pandemics, related to vaccines, related to masks. Dare we even go into these topics? And it's not hard to think about, okay, here are topics that are culturally and naturally, nationally, very divisive. And it's not hard for those, almost, they almost certainly are going to trickle down right, into our churches, into our communities, into our, our bodies of believers that we have. And it's not hard for them to become divisive, and they can. And they have, right? They cause division. We could even think more locally, right? For our body here as Clemson Prez, it's been a rough year and a half or so for us. Right? It's been a rough go of it. And there are things that are easily, that uh, can cause division, but I want to say that as Christians, we, we need to go deeper than that when we think about what is divisive among us. We need to go deeper than these things because when there is division in the church, it's never just a cultural issue. It's never just a policy issue or even a vision issue. It's a sin issue. It's a sin issue, and I don't mean that everyone who disagrees with us is, is in sin. I mean it's our own hearts. It's a heart issue. It's our tendency that in our own fallen hearts to, to self-exalt, to consider our own interests as more important than others. Right? Which is to say that the divisions really aren't about the issues. It's about our need to daily apply the gospel of grace to our own hearts, to daily apply the mind of Christ and, and begin to put others ahead of ourselves, and to see them for who they are in Christ. And to see ourselves as who we are in Christ. I think back to uh, one of the first threatened church splits, right? Adam and Eve. Right? All the blaming, the self-justifying, the transferring of, of blame to the other person. This was a church of two people, and they very nearly split. But that's human nature. That's fallen human nature. That's fallen human nature. You see, the problem in churches is not that there are issues we disagree on. There will always be issues we disagree on. The problem is our fallen hearts, their tendency to dig in, to self-justify, to demonize the other side. Our disagreements are not the problem. Our sin is the problem. But to diagnose is to see the solution. That what we need then is not perfect unanimity across every issue. What we need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul can exhort these women without even naming the topic. He's simply applying again the gospel, the need for them to have the mind of Christ among the two of them. Think again of the church in the first century. There would have been no bigger dividing line running through that church than the division between Jews and Gentiles. And yet, what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says Christ has broken down the dividing wall? That Jesus Christ himself is our peace who has taken the two and made one new man. 
And if Christ can bring together people in other centuries, certainly he can do it today in our century with issues that are certainly less divisive than that. Now, seeing how difficult this can be, the next few verses, verses 4 through 7, provide some help for us. They do. They provide some help. Three things that we see in these verses. And I want us to read these verses. These are verses that are probably some of the more well-known verses in the book of Philippians. They're, they're very sweet, comforting verses that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. But let's read them today in the context of what we've just read, in the context of this charge for unity. Paul says three helps. Number one, rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Here again, this has been a theme running throughout the letter. We've talked about this several times, and we're getting used to it at this point. But I want you to see, Paul has something very specific in mind here. Rejoice in the Lord. If you remember five or six weeks ago, last time I was uh, up here preaching, we talked about rejoicing in the Lord from chapter 3. And we talked about how rejoicing in the Lord, one of the things that it does for us, is that when we rejoice in the Lord, it, it solidifies for us our own identity in Christ. See, there are many things that we can rejoice in. We can rejoice in our own accomplishments, right? We can rejoice in career attainments, all these different things. And we said last time that when we're rejoicing in those things, we will always be on this pendulum between pride when things are going well and despair when things are going poorly but we will never find true joy. Joy is on a totally different axis only when we are rejoicing in the Lord. Now, I want you to, to broaden that out and think about rejoicing in the Lord in community, as a community. Right? If, if in yourself it causes pride or despair, what's it do to the community? If you're boasting, rejoicing, say, in your own orthodoxy, right? the, the fact that you believe that you hold all the correct opinions about all the most important things, how can you ever be in fellowship with someone who holds different opinions on some of those most important things? Right? Rejoicing in ourselves, it's not only bad for our own hearts, it can divide us from other believers. Paul says, let your joy, let your boasting, let your sense of value and worth and significance be in the Lord. Right? That will be the key to finding unity with other believers, even when those other believers on the surface might seem different from you. When we rejoice in ourselves in our churches, I think we know what happens. That's when we tend to form little cliques, little subcultures. Right? We tend to be defined by our issues the things that we put the most priority in. And those circles, those little sub-fellowships, over time, they just become smaller and smaller and smaller as we continue subdividing over more and more issues. But Paul would say, listen, here's one way to avoid that kind of factionalism in your churches. Let your joy, your rejoicing, your boasting be in the Lord. Here's a second help that also is in verse 5 where Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And again, if you have the NIV, there's a different word there. Let your gentleness 
be known to everyone. The ESV put that one in a footnote. But I think that is a wonderful word. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. That's the same word that described the meekness and the gentleness of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let your gentleness be known to all. That's one of those verses. That's not hard to understand what that means. But that can be hard for us to put into practice. It sounds really great, but being gentle means being patient in suffering. Not retaliating. And that can be very challenging. If I could share maybe just a a very trivial example, it might help illustrate the need for this. There's a certain type of person, perhaps some of you have, have seen this type of person who never passes up the opportunity to pick a fight. Never lets that opportunity go by. You see them a lot on social media these days. Never passing up an opportunity to correct someone else. To let them know that they are wrong and they need to argue to the end. This is the type of person who lets their contrariness be known to all. And everyone sees it. That's, such a, the, that's a part of the reason I believe that social media can be such a very unhealthy place to spend much time. They live out the truth of Proverbs 12:16. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent overlooks an insult. Paul is saying we are to be the congregation of the prudent, the gentle, who are able to overlook the insult, who are able to overlook when they are sinned against. We are to let our gentleness be known to all. And then here's the third help, verses 6 and 7. When unity seems to be too big of a challenge for us and it feels like it might even be an impossibility, we are to take it to the Lord in prayer. These verses, I think, are probably the most well-known verses in this part of Philippians, and they are some sweet verses. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Just the basic flow of that verse, from anxiety, through prayer, lots of prayer, right? Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, petition, to peace. From anxiety to peace, going through prayer. Now, we think about those verses in lots of different contexts, don't we? And we should, right? Because there are lots of different reasons for anxiety. And so we have lots of reasons to go to the Lord in prayer. But, but just think about these verses in the context of Paul's exhortation to unity. The exhortation to unity as a church, a large church with many different people, that can lead to some anxiety from time to time. Right? When we think of the differing opinions of other people, that can lead to anxiety. But there is something to do with that anxiety, and Paul tells us, we are to take that to the Lord in prayer. I assume I'm not the only one here who's, who's reminded of the old song that we sing. Right? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We are to take our anxieties wherever they may arise 
and to take them to the Lord, to unburden ourselves there before the throne of grace with a gentle Savior, a gentle Savior who knows those anxieties perfectly, who sympathizes with them, who is your great high priest, who asks you to unburden yourself there, and he promises in response that he will give the peace that passes all understanding. And isn't that the promise that we need? Because we say, I don't understand how this could work out. I don't understand how unity is even possible in a body like this. And he says, there is a peace that passes understanding. Because as a body, we will never seek after simply a natural unity. But in the church, there is a supernatural unity that comes in Christ. Let me close by simply asking you to join me in one very quick little thought experiment. Pretend for a moment that Jesus himself was praying for our church and you had that opportunity to somehow overhear the words that Jesus was praying. What do you suppose might be foremost in Jesus' mind as he's praying for us as a church? It's easy to think of lots of things, isn't it? But I know some of you know where I'm going with this. Because John 17 is Thursday night the night before Jesus is crucified, and it records for us the longest prayer of Jesus that's recorded in the Bible. And the main theme of Jesus' prayer is that his disciples will be unified. This is the night before he goes to the cross. He knows exactly what is coming, and the main thing on his mind, it's mentioned five times in that prayer, is that the church will be one. He says, Father, even as you and I are one, may they also be one. Right? He is praying for the very supernatural unity that exists between God the Father and God the Son. That that same unity will characterize his disciples in times to come because he knows what happens the next day. It will not be an easy unity to pursue. This is what we call a costly unity. And yet it is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. It is the very thing on Jesus' heart as he prays for his people. So let me then encourage you that it is costly, but it is worth it. It is costly, but it is possible in Christ as we follow him together. As we as a church commit ourselves not only today, but in these months and years ahead, to following Christ together, that we will do that as one body of believers, unified in Christ, in community, as those whose names are in the book of life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us for our good, to teach us to correct us, to train us in righteousness. So, Lord, we pray that uh, the seed which you have sown may take root, may grow and bear fruit 30, 60, even 100 times that which has been sown. This we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.